1: Hey, welcome to the DJV Health Show. I'm Dr. Jack Stockwell at ForbiddenDoctor.com and uh, welcome back. I'm glad to be able to talk to you again.
2: This podcast made possible in part by Calitrin, the safe way to lose weight, Prevagent, keeping your brain healthy, and by My Pillow, guaranteed to be the most comfortable pillow you'll ever own.
1: I missed you for a few days, but I'm back and ready to go. And I had two or three different things I wanted to talk to you about, but Because of a particular patient that I was dealing with yesterday with cancer and questions about chemotherapy, I thought maybe I might mention a couple of things about that to get the show going. In fact, there's enough about it in the early days of chemotherapy development that even oncologists don't even know that I thought you might find interesting. It's a very fascinating story. Um, During World War II, the Department of Defense had all these stockpiles of nerve gas, which were left over from World War I. And they weren't using them, of course, in World War II. And someone at the Department of Defense had this brilliant idea to try and convert these nerve gases into uh, medical therapeutics. <laughs> you kind of have to wonder what this guy was thinking about looking at all of this nerve gas and say, boy, there must be some way we could use that on the human body. In a, in a sense that wouldn't kill it. And serendipitously, uh, about the same time, it turned out that a group of American soldiers were inadvertently exposed to some of this nerve gas at an experimental research center. And what they noticed at autops- in their autopsy, because it, it, all the soldiers were killed by this, is that their white blood cell counts had all gone down, and their normal bone marrow had been suppressed. So... One of the Department of Defense doctors got this brilliant idea about 1945 that perhaps you could treat cancer using nerve gas. So they tried nitrogen mustard, and they used it to treat leukemia and lymphoma. And what it did was to knock out the bone marrow where the leukemias and the lymphomas began, which are diseases, you know, of the white blood cells. And amazingly, the nerve gas seemed to kill the cancer so back about 1946 the department of defense actually contacted dr gilman at yale university you know then the um the preeminent pharmacologist of the day and they gave him a huge amount of money to test it on animal models and lo and behold the tumors started to regress so you know of course all the animals died but it was very impressive as this was the first time in history that anyone had seen cancerous tumors regress from a drug treatment. So they decided to try it on a patient, and they had this patient with advanced lymphoma, and as there were no treatments for lymphoma in 1946, they gave him this nitrogen mustard derivative, and lo and behold, all his tumors regressed, which of course, in in any way they looked at it, it was considered uh, a miracle. Now, six weeks later, he died. But it was an extraordinary event because it was the first time in medical history that doctors had witnessed and documented the regression of tumors in a patient with an advanced disease. So they started to play around with and tweak and, and uh, change the formula a little bit. And over the next 10 to 15 years, they gradually developed a variety of drugs, all beginning at Yale University. And so this went to other medical centers where they were using these toxic chemicals for healing, derived ironically from nerve gas, which, of course, is designed to kill you. And so considering here that the original derivative was nerve gas, and they, they, you know, they called it mustard gas because it was used to kill people in World War One. But now they're using it as a therapeutic modality in chemotherapy. And very few people realize that the whole generation of um, chemotherapeutic drugs that are being used today, which is over 100 of them now, really developed from poisonous nerve gas that was developed for warfare. And that's how it all began. And it, it didn't develop out of anything good. I mean, you know, its origins are rather unpleasant. But that's how it all began with the Department of Defense contracting doctors to use their nitrogen mustard stores to see if they could use it to treat any kind of a disease. So why was the medical community so excited about something like this? Well, when Goodman and Gilman, and Gilman there at, at Yale, published their results with the, um, the animal studies that were showing success with these aggressive lymphomas in these animals when they published their, uh, their first case report of, this, of a, with a single patient, the one that died six weeks later, but not till after his tumors had regressed. And remember, this was kind of an original formula, so it was kind of rough, and the fellow was dying anyway. And, you know, who wouldn't reach out for something at the last minute for something experimental? Interestingly, a side note is uh, there's a law in Arizona now that if you are on your deathbed, essentially, and um, your wherever you, your locus, wherever you're living at the time, uh, has policies, laws, whatever else against experimental stuff. In Arizona, that's not the law anymore. Arizona will allow experimental drugs for people who are on their way out. Anyway. The medical community just, you know, was just stunned by this. And so because they didn't know of, of, of any drug that could reduce tumors, this was the first time in history where a drug therapy, a synthetic drug, mind you, had reduced tumors, and it was just an amazing event in medicine. And it was in all the papers, and of course there was no internet in those days, but it really spread around the world, the cancer's magic bullet might be right around the corner. And antibiotics at that time were really starting to get developed and were showing up in, uh, in research all over the place. With the general uh, context of the time, with the enthusiasm about antibiotics, which, you know, it really came into its own during World War II. I mean, early soldiers with injuries using antibiotics could reverse these terrible infections. Now, antibiotics had showed up a decade before, you know, with uh was it Fleming, I think, in up in Toronto that I can't remember if Fleming was the one who came up with the uh diabetes drug, or if Fleming was the one who accidentally discovered penicillin. In any event, uh the early development of antibiotics showed up about the same time um as World War Two. And then after World War Two, you have this Uh, conjunction taking place with the development of anti-cancer drugs. And so researchers thought, my goodness, here's another magic bullet with the antibiotics, you know, uh, that could take care of pneumonia. But now we have something that could make tumors go away, just as antibiotics were curing infectious diseases, like I said, with pneumonia and terrible infections, which previously had no treatment. And if you did not recover on your own, Prior to this time, with serious pneumonia, uh, you were a goner. So they thought they had it. They thought that this nitrogen mustard derivative was the next penicillin for cancer, so to speak. And just as everything had come together with these extraordinarily effective antibiotics, which of course was very overstated, but we know that now, with this one case report, they said, "Well, now we have the magic cancer or the magic bullet for cancer." And as it turned out, as usual, when things like this start to show up, there's a lot of fanfare and press and, and press conferences and, and meetings and, and uh, symposiums and whatever. But still, the research was very slow in coming. And, and proving results with most of the cancers, after they had done this originally with lymphoma, was really difficult. And chemotherapy actually got started as a sort of a standard method of treatment for cancer after this. This um, initial enthusiasm in the mid-1940s from the mustard gas. And it was really a very slow process because a lot of the initial enthusiasm was tainted by the fact that most patients weren't responding in waiting for the tumor to shrink. The patient would end up dying. And so there was as much confusion and worry and doubt that started to show up after the Explosive, almost volcanic enthusiasm with the success with the first patient. Now, there's different kinds of cancers, just as there's over a hundred different drugs for cancer now. There's different kinds of cancers. And it wasn't until about the late 1960s that the idea that chemotherapy could have this magical effect on cancer really came back into uh, the fore again. It had kind of drifted off a little bit because they were using the same modality of the nitrogen mustard on any cancer that came down the pike. And it didn't work on the vast majority of cancers. It only seemed to work on cancers of the blood, the lymphomas, leukemias, things like that. And there's what is known as soft cancers and hard cancers. And it's a, it's a kind of a, a single incident with the development of the um, MOP. That's an acronym, an acronym, uh, M-O-P-P. And M-O-P-P was a combination chemotherapy regimen that was used for Hodgkin's. And the anacronym is derived from the component drugs something called mustergen, and there's chlormethine and moustine and nitrogen mustard and, and oncovin and uh, benchristine or something known as VCR. And it was a treatment for Hodgkin's disease that was developed by this Dr. Um, Davida, who at that time was working at the National Cancer Institute in Bethesda, Maryland. Uh, just a side note here, with, in my practice I wanted to tell you about, um, Salt Lake City is is the the center of what's called the Intermountain West where my practice is located and it's the only real population center to speak of between Denver and Reno, Nevada that's sitting there on the California border. And there are um, some really well-known well-established uh, cancer treatment centers, the the Huntsman Center in Salt Lake because, they're, that's the only, Salt Lake's the only population center. And so um, I have, in the past, talked to medical people that are associated with the Huntsman Cancer Center, and they do an awful lot of research and do a lot of good. In fact, one of the side, of, uh, side studies that they did that has been poo-pooed, the same as some studies that came out of Africa that were very exciting that they found out that people who have cancer, certain kinds of cancer, if you gave them measles, introduced measles into the body so that they had a measles infection, the cancer disappeared. Fascinating stuff. Why? Because the cancer doesn't know that you're there, and your body doesn't know the cancer is there. And if we have time in this podcast, I can get more into that as to why you can have tumors developing in the body for so long before you ever know it that your immune system didn't see it. But when they really turn the immune system on with something like uh, what is considered a viral disease, like measles, the immune system gets this five-alarm fire going off. It signals the immune system to get out of their lazy cots and get back out on the battlefield and go to work and suddenly, oh my gosh, what is this stuff and destroy the cancer in a matter of days. Now that would be a very, very inexpensive treatment for cancer. And it's been pushed aside and covered up because of something I'm going to talk to you about here in the show that has everything to do with why chemotherapy, hasn't been any more effective than it is. It's beginning to be less effective, and another treatment is starting to show up that capitalizes on the idea of awakening your own immune system against cancer. But let me go on here with this original story because the interesting thing is with some of these Hodgkin patients, the results were were longstanding, that they seemed to be cured, and so this was the first time that there was a significant long-term effect from synthetic, very toxic chemicals, mind you, and Dr. DeVita deserves a lot of credit for that. I mean, you know, we ought to give the devil his due, but it did work for a lot of these Hodgkin patients. Up to about 50% of the advanced cases seemed to respond um, beautifully for long periods of time. Now, there was toxicity. There was some rather yucky side effects that would show up, But Dr. DeVita's work with Hodgkin's really prompted a new enthusiasm for chemo by the late 1960s that had kind of gone off to the side for a while. And so a lot of the enthusiasm for the 1940s had waned because they weren't getting the results that they thought they would. And so Dr. DeVita really revived this whole new interest in the use of these toxic synthetic medications for the treatment of cancer. So it just so happened to be the disease that he was working on that started to get them to understand that there was a big difference between cancers of the blood and the hard cancers, lung, uterine, breast, prostate, things like that. We'll continue with more of the DJV Health Show next. I'm Dr. Jack Stockwell at ForbiddenDoctor.com Very happy to be with you here today with, what? with, with a little bit of history, medical history, that uh, I personally find very fascinating. And it was, you know, it was kind of like uh, 1946 all over again, because Hodgkin's is a very unique disease, and it's one of only a few of the hundred cancers that actually responds to chemo. I mean, we all know people, family members, friends, whatever else. You know people, I certainly know people, that have gone under chemo treatment for these hard cancers, and I'll get into more detail that in a moment, that did not survive. But you may know, I certainly know people with Hodgkins, non-Hodgkins, different kinds of lymphoma, leukemias, pediatric children, leukemias, uh, even um, testicular cancer, obviously in men response to this kind of a treatment when there's so many cancers that don't. And so it just so happened to be the disease that they were working on, and it happened to be one of the few cancers that actually responds to these toxic chemotherapy drugs. And they assumed if chemotherapy could work so effectively for Hodgkin's disease, which in those days was a deadly illness, it has to work for everything else, you know, for all the other cancers. But that was an assumption that was not warranted And it turned out to be very erroneous because of Dr. Davita's work and his work specifically with Hodgkin's disease and specifically with his work with this MOP, this M-O-P-P chemotherapy regimen. There was this um, burst of news in uh, the newspapers and magazines and news reports and medical journals, I mean, just everywhere. So the question that they had then was, then why then is chemotherapy so ineffective For most types of cancers, the hard cancers, especially at the stage four level. And there's a lot of people who, uh, when they finally discover the fact that they have cancer, it's already at stage four. Now, I've got a very good friend of mine that I've known since the 1970s who showed up in my clinic. I hadn't seen him for a few years, but he showed up in my clinic last summer with stage four bowel cancer. And he was told, well, we're going to take your bowel out. And he says, well, like the devil you are. And he said, well, if we don't take your bowel out, you're going to die. Does that mean I have to poop in a bag on my stomach? Yeah. No, that's not going to happen. I'll die first. So he comes to me. And I said, well, you know, that's one of the reasons why we created these enzymes, long-life energy enzymes, following Dr. Gonzalez's uh, protocol in um, Manhattan, who just very effective enzyme treatment for cancer. And I'm not a cancer doctor. And I don't treat cancer. But I offer nutrition support for my patients who do have cancer. So I said, well, Larry, I want you to take 10 of these in the morning and 10 of these at night on an empty stomach. They're capsules. They're the long life energy enzymes or capsules. I want you to take 10 in the morning on an empty stomach when you first wake up and don't eat anything for at least 45 minutes. And then I want you to take 10 of these before you go to bed at night on an empty stomach, not having eaten anything for at least three hours before you go to bed. And he had, he was so fearful of having to poop in a bag the rest of his life that he he said, well, Jack, I'll do anything. I'll I'll do anything you tell me to do. And I said, well, then after you take the enzymes, I want you to go out and howl at the moon for half an hour. I'm just, just kidding with him. And he did it. And I said, I want to see you in 30 days. He came back in 30 days and he had a little bit more color in his face. But he said, Jack, the bleeding stopped. I'm not passing any blood. And I said, well, what does the oncologist say? Well, I haven't seen him yet because they're mad at me because I won't do their treatment. You get back in there and have them re-examine you. Well, the tumor was still there, but he wasn't passing any blood. So I said, I want you to continue with this regimen for at least another 30 to 60 days. Don't change anything that you're doing except get sugar out of your diet. No sugar whatsoever because that is the food of cancer. Cancer cells are so primitive, they can't metabolize anything but sugar. So if you get rid of the sugar, according to Johns Hopkins Medical Center, you get rid of the sugar, you starve the cancer. So between that and the enzymes, that's what I want you to do, and I want to see you in 60 days. He comes back in 60 days. This fellow is 77, 78. He works for himself. He builds mining equipment. He says, Jack, I'm back to work. I'm back out in my garage. I'm working 8 to 10 hours a day. I have plenty of energy. Well, tell me about the tumor. He said, well, it's still there, but it's getting encapsulated and it's not bleeding and I have no pain and I have regular bowel movements. That's what the oncologists say. Well, they won't talk to me because I won't do chemotherapy. They release me from from their care. He says, you're my cancer doctor. I said, no, no, Larry, I'm not a cancer doctor. I'm just offering you some nutrition to support your body to take care of itself well, whatever, whatever, you know, kind of a thing. And I said, this is what I want you to continue to do because you're going to need to do this probably for the rest of your life. Did you get rid of the sugar? Well, you know, sugar in my coffee count. Yeah. Sugar in your coffee counts. Learn to drink it black and then a few other things. Well, I last saw him maybe three months ago and he, and, but I asked the staff, does Larry come in here and get these? oh yeah, he's in here about every month picking up some more enzymes. Now, I want to get into more of that in a minute because this is one of the reasons why the Hodgkin's treatment did not work on hard cancers, because they assumed then that if it worked on Hodgkin's, this stuff should work for everything. So why then was chemotherapy so ineffective for most types of cancer, the hard cancers, especially at the stage four level where I found Larry? Well, there's over a hundred different types of cancer, depending on which textbook you consult, and the great majority of them in the textbook do not respond to chemotherapy. And as it turns out, the cancers that respond to chemo are generally the blood-related cancers like leukemia and lymphoma, and they're not all that common compared to the major cancer killers. And these are what, the, these, the, the lymphoma and the leukemias are what are known as soft cancers. And the major cancer killers like uh, lung, colon, prostate, pancreatic, uterine, breast, do not respond to chemotherapy. These are the typical solid or hard tumors as opposed to blood tumors. And ironically enough, it's the failure of so many types of chemo for hard cancers that has created this new wave of, and I know you've heard of it, immunotherapy. And the truly ironic part is that it is just this immunotherapy approach that is behind this marvelous anti-cancer mechanism that's inside your own immune system that keeps cancer at bay for most of us. Now, many cancer experts out there tell us that if you live to a ripe old age of, you know, 70 to 80 and beyond, you'll probably have six to seven cancers in your lifetime, but you never know about it because your immune system is on top of it because you have a strong immune system. People with weak immune systems fall uh, victim, not just to cancers, but a lot of opportunistic diseases and And they're constantly sick and they're constantly in the hospital or constantly on antibiotics or whatever else. We all know somebody like that. But it was the failure of chemotherapy for the hard cancers that got them researching more and more into how does the human body and healthy people discover, detect, fight, and destroy the cancers that plague us. And that's where the immunotherapy came from. And I thought, I always thought that was so ironic. I I can even remember the Time magazine. Was it 20 years ago or something like that that had immunotherapy written across the front page, the new treatment for cancer? Well, it's not a new treatment. It's It's Mother Nature's treatment for cancer. But it goes back to what I was saying about the Huntsman Cancer Center in Salt Lake City and other places around the world, especially, I can't remember if it was Uganda or Nigeria or one of those uh, sub-Saharan Western African countries where they started publishing studies that they were discovering that if they would give, oh, I, I remember it was with melanoma. And you know how deadly melanoma can be. And with melanoma, when they gave the patients measles, so they're burning up with fever, with a measles infection, and they leave them alone. They let the fever burn them up. And the temperature from the fever didn't get to where it was, you know, threatening of life, but it was hot enough that it turned the immune system on. Now, there's, there are doctors, cancer doctors out there now and certain cancer centers around the country that will put you in heat chambers because heat activates the immune system. One of the reasons why we have a fever when we get sick is because the body's own intelligence deep inside, which is what the forbidden doctor is. I'm not the forbidden doctor. It's this doctor that you're forbidden to know about by the medical tyranny deep inside you that knows how to handle these things. And it will raise your temperature to activate the immune system. And the immune system is just deadly against the enemy, but it's kind of it kind of hangs around in dormancy for the most part because we don't want an overactive immune system. So a lot of times when we get a fever, the immune system kicks in, and if we have a cold, a flu, the fever that accompanies that, that we're all so often wanting to suppress it. Oh my gosh, he's got a fever, let's give him something. No, 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 no. Unless the temperature gets up to 104 and a half or 105, leave him alone. The body is not stupid. It knows what it's doing to activate the immune system. So um, when they would introduce a viral infection into these people with melanoma, the melanoma would go away. And sometimes in less than two weeks, it would be gone. But that's kind of pushed aside for a very important reason I I'm want to tell you about in the final segment of today's show, which isn't exactly the most exciting information, but there is, as you would suspect, There's always a money aspect to this. Now, it's the rare cancers like Hodgkin's and some rare cancers, lymphomas, leukemias, multiple myeloma, you know, that tend to respond to chemotherapy very nicely. And there are interesting reasons and all kinds of theories, you know, about why chemo works, when it does work, and why it doesn't work, and when it doesn't work. And actually, chemotherapy, as the 1946 study that I talked about shows, wipes out the bone marrow and leukemias, and lymphomas, and multiple myeloma, the cancers that do respond to chemo are diseases of the bone marrow. So then then as well as now, using uh, toxic chemo, you're actually knocking out the bone marrow. So of course, these diseases will regress, and the patient improves, and sometimes permanently. But the other solid tumors, the major cancer killers, like tumors of the breast and the lung, They're not bone marrow cancers. So you can wipe out the bone marrow with the chemo, but these heart cancers will still continue to grow because the cancers don't derive from bone marrow stem cells. So for the great majority of the major cancer killers, chemotherapy is ineffective. So we'll continue with more of the DJV Health Show. Next, I am Dr. Jack Stockwell at ForbiddenDoctor.com. So it's great business time for Caledron. I would think the
2: phones would be ringing off the hook and people would be ordering ad nauseum.
1: That's right. You know, it'll be 25 years this April, and we've been helping customers lose weight safely and effectively for 25 years. So if you need to lose the weight, you've really got to check it out on our website, toploss.com, because like Doug said, it's so much more than just a weight loss product. I mean, we're not talking about a quick fix fad product. There are no drugs. There are no stimulants. Our number one ingredient is collagen protein. Uh, it's got types one and three. That's for the muscle and the joints. All
2: right. And don't forget the ninety ninety special right now. Use the DJV code for free shipping as well. DJV code at toploss.com and the Get Fit Contest. That sounds like it would be kind of fun. Calitrin at toploss.com. Thanks to Elizabeth Miller here, one of the great Calitrin consultants at toploss.com. You're listening to DJV Health with Dr. Jack Stockwell.
1: Listen and learn. So I want to get to the heart and core of what I'm talking about here. There's this special area of medicine, uh, oncology, oncos It comes from Greek oncos meaning tuberology, of course, meaning the study of. And as is the case probably in every, all the other businesses' aspects of free enterprise, anytime there's a chance to make more money, there's going to be a movement in, into that area. And I, the reason I bring that up is because there are cancer drugs, very expensive, like Avastin that was on the market for two years for breast cancer. Um, they had to be taken off the market, very expensive drug, but it didn't work. Somehow it got through the FDA in the marketplace, didn't work. And and all and all of this 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 kind of hype and push in this direction exists just to get drugs approved that cost a lot of money, which oncologists can then charge the insurance companies and make a fortune off of it. And chemotherapy can cost anywhere from 50 to 100,000 dollars for a single patient. There's treatments for pancreatic cancer that are not effective, can cost 50 to 70,000 dollars. And so the cost of cancer therapy, obviously, is enormous. And it's estimated that chemo may be costing up to about 100 billion a year in the U.S alone in terms of gross income, 100 billion dollars. I mean, that's a lot of money, and who's going to stop that gravy trade? Regardless of whether the stuff works or not. Um, But I bring this to your attention because, as I'm sure you know, it's money that rules healthcare in America. In all the other industrialized Western nations, healthcare is provided by the government. But in America, these, you know, and those governments only pay for what is tried and true and works. All the other countries, Canada, Mexico, the European countries, the European Union countries, um, South American, Central American countries, all health care is paid for by the government. Now, of course, it's the taxpayer, higher tax rates. But those governments only pay for what works. Here in America, it's the gravy trade. Whatever we can now push, that's what's going to get the attention. Now, I'm not chemo bashing. Please understand me. In a few cancers, chemo can be very effective. But that's not the point. What is the point? is that a policy that's allowed to oncologists but denied to every other medical specialty has created a real juggernaut that we all pay for with these exorbitant insurance costs. What patients don't realize, they do not realize, and the media never will talk about it, is that oncologists are allowed to make money off the sale of chemo in their office. If you just Google cancer docs profit from chemotherapy drugs, They obviously have a vested interest in using these drugs even in situations where it's not effective because they can sell it in their clinic and make money. The New York Times had an article several years ago that pointed out that oncologists make hundreds of thousands of dollars every year themselves just off the sales of chemo. And so uh, it's all been quietly done. Oncologists make a fortune out of this. I mean, if you have 15 patients getting Avastin that's ten thousand dollars per patient per month. I mean, you can do the math. The fact that it doesn't work any well doesn't work very well. A lot of chemo drugs don't work very well, and there's a lot of confusion with their um, collusion with the drug companies and the FDA. And we all know about the revolving door that exists between our government and drug companies the CEO of a pharmaceutical company will move over to the FDA and supervise the development of a drug that their former employer was promoting. And then that works the other way as well, where officials in the FDA or the CDC will suddenly become the CEO of a pharmaceutical company. Uh, unless you're watching this stuff in business magazines, it's private information, it's announced in the news once, and then essentially it's never mentioned again. And so My brother, when he was uh, brother-in-law, when he was the medical director of the largest HMO in in, uh, Utah, where he just retired from here recently, told a story where they laid off a bunch of high-ranking directors, one of which was an oncologist. And he he told my brother-in-law, hey, it's okay. They got rid of my position. I'll just go back to private practice. I'll make more money there anyway, because I never will run out of cancer patients. I mean, it's so sad. We're not winning the war on cancer. In fact, we're losing ground where in several states, cancer has surpassed uh, heart disease as the number one killer. So I have podcasts at uh, ForbiddenDoctor.com. If you go to the podcast search bar on the homepage and put in cancer, we have probably a, half a dozen podcasts that go into much greater detail. And if you're interested in my enzymes, as you should be, for energy alone, you can go to ForbiddenDoctor.com, and there on the homepage, you have a way to be able to order the long-life energy enzymes that I'm telling you are just changing lives left and right. Well, that's it for this week's DJV Health Show. Remember, you can hear all of our DJV Health Show podcasts with me and Dr. Ken Cronhaus at DJVHealthShow.com, and you can listen to my podcast at ForbiddenDoctor.com. I'm Dr. Jack Stockwell. I am Robert Strickler. My wife Joyce and I have been married for 53 years. Certainly one of the really important things in my life are our children and our grandchildren. I am essentially a writer. I've been involved in communications and the media. I've been an avid fly fisherman for at least 40 or more years. I've been taking Prevagen on a regular basis for at least eight years. For me, the greatest benefit over the years has been that Prevagen seems to help me recall things and also think more clearly, have a crisper ability to remember and think through things. And I enthusiastically recommend Prevagen. It has helped me an awful lot. Prevagen, healthier brain, better life. Robert Strickler is a content contributor for Prevagen and real user. Based on a clinical study of subgroups of individuals who are cognitively normal or mildly impaired, this product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This podcast
2: made possible in part by Calatrin, the safe way to lose weight. Prevagen, keeping your brain healthy. And by My Pillow, guaranteed to be the most comfortable pillow you'll ever own.